What does it mean to be homesick for a place everybody hates? That's the question Dr. Cat asked during the episode you're about to hear. The first in our new series, Playing Appalachia, a collection of conversations with Appalachian and Appalachian-adjacent gamers and game makers. This series is personal to me. I left the Appalachian region when I was 17 years old when I, like so many other young people from the area, left to attend university in pursuit of the version of success we had been sold. Success was always out there, somewhere else, beyond the mountains. At first, after I left, I never really thought about home, and now, over a decade later, I think about it constantly, and as it turns out, the rest of the country is thinking about it constantly, too. In 2016, the U.S. collectively pointed a trembling finger of accusation at Appalachia. The verdict was in. America was fucked, and Trump country was to blame. Think piece after think piece about the region was pushed out, circulated, and lauded by national news publications for the author's honorable attempts to uncover or demystify the truth of this region. There were stories, endless stories, intended to incite rage or extract sympathy, stripping down the nuance of my home to sound bites that were simple enough for mass consumption. But none of them were my stories. None of them were stories about bookish kids who ignored their math homework in favor of reading stories about spaceships, or stories about kids with gay moms. None of them talked about the lock-ins at community centers where we stayed up all night playing Super Smash Brothers or Soul Calibur. None of them were about kids who tested out of computer science courses without having ever attended a single day of class, all because they had spent their free time teaching themselves how to code websites. None of them mentioned Appalachian Jews, and there are not enough stories about the gamers, writers, artists, musicians, rabble-rousers, activists, and caretakers that populate my memories of home. But my stories aren't the only ones that are forgotten or ignored. As Dr. Katz says, often the story of Appalachia relies on the intentional disappearing of people who complicate our simple narratives. The series is a way to rectify that oversight, to draw out the stories of people who have lived, currently live, or have created games that in some way bear witness to the people that live in the Appalachian region. Appalachia is sprawling, full of deep crevices and seemingly endless caverns that are easy to get lost in. When talking about my home, when trying to explain my commingled feelings of frustration and deep love for a place everyone seems eager to malign, it feels too big a story to tell. And I often feel like my voice is the wrong one to be heard when it comes to telling it. But maybe that's the point. Maybe it's not ever supposed to be one voice that is heard. Maybe it's always supposed to be many. Don't let the papers fool you. There is no story of Appalachia. There are, however, quite a lot of stories. And with that, my little broad beans, let's start hearing some new ones. Welcome to Gaming Broadcast, the official podcast of GamingBroadly.com. I'm your host, Jamie Dale, the main broad over at Gaming Broadly, and today I am joined by Elizabeth Catt. Elizabeth Catt is a historian and writer originally from East Tennessee. She has a PhD in history and currently lives in Stanton, Virginia, and is the director of 
Possel, a historical consulting firm. Her book, What Are You Getting Wrong About Appalachia, will be out from Belt Publishing February 2018. And she is here today to open up the discussion about um, Appalachian video games, which is our, our new series coming up. And uh, Liz, did I, did I get that name right of the historical consulting firm? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Cool. Close enough. <laughs> Um, I'm going to put all that in the show notes for people to check out in case you couldn't figure out how to spell it from the way that I pronounced it. Um, but how are you doing today? Oh, I'm super good. How are you doing, Jamie? Pretty well. Do you prefer to go by Liz or Elizabeth? You can call me Liz. Awesome. Or Dr. Cat when I'm feeling particularly formal. <laughs> if you're feeling nasty. <laughs> So I'm super excited about your upcoming book. I actually, uh, what's the word? I consumed it. I would say I consumed it last night. That was the feeling I had when I was reading it. Awesome. Um, so tell tell our listeners about your upcoming book. Yeah. So I have a um, short book coming out from Belt in February uh, 2018. And so it starts with this idea that Don West, who is a, high, um, a founder at Highlander Folk School had, and he said that in every generation, uh, there's this rediscovery of Appalachia. And so my book is about this process of rediscovery and also the consequences that follow, um, particularly the imposition of a single narrative onto Appalachia as a monolithic place full of unique problems and pathologies. And so my book talks about this and the construction of the Appalachian as a sort of helpless person who just doesn't know what's good for them. I think these narratives, these rediscoveries of Appalachia often rely on an intentional disappearing of people who complicate the narrative. So all non-white people, progressive people, environmentalist, LGBT folks, um, people who aren't sort of evangelical Christians. And I want to interrupt this disappearing and tell different stories about Appalachia. Mm, so beautiful. It's a really wonderful and very personable book. And I can, I got the sense when I read it that there was some impersonal investment in kind of the writing and the creation of that book. Yeah. So the story behind its creation is um, I was asked to write it by Anne Trubeck, who is the director of Belt Publishing. And we had been kind of talking back and forth online through social media and, you know, internet comments and that kind of thing uh, during the election, because Anne is in Ohio, she's in the Rust Belt. And we were both equally frustrated by the way that the narratives of our regions had played out during the election in the wake of Hillbilly LG. And so we also lived in places that often get conflated for one another. So we'll talk more about this, but, you know, the Rust Belt and Appalachia do overlap a little bit. But for most people in their minds, they're, they're just sort of the same thing, um, especially in these narratives that were coming out about Trump country. And so we were both, we kind of wrapped our frustration into the writing of this book. The, t the title is really funny. It was just sort of uh, a working title that we had during the writing process because it seemed to be all that we did during the election was talk about what things are, people are getting wrong about <laughs> Rust Belt, what, you know, what, we, what yeah. people are getting wrong about Appalachia. And it just sort of stuck. So I was super happy to write this book um, and had read some, you know, blog posts that I made and comments that I made on Twitter. And she gave me like complete latitude to shape the book in the way that I wanted. But we wanted to do kind of two things, which is do, do you know, a, a heavy critique of these narratives, not just, you know, related to the election, but also going back in time, you know, from the Civil War to the Great Depression to the War on Poverty and to show the consequences of these narratives, but also repopulate 
Appalachia with the people that are historically left out of Appalachian narratives. So we wanted to, we thought since we live in a moment where Appalachia has been created in one image, that it would be completely fair if I re- remade Appalachia myself as a place full of radical history and progressive people. Yeah, and the storytelling components of it, I think, are, are beautifully on point. Appalachia, for me, has always been a hub of storytelling. <laughs> like, I remember, because I grew up there, but I remember growing up going to, like, storytelling conventions, and, like, there was this whole idea of, like, speaking aloud your individual story. You had a, I don't have it with me, but you had a beautiful quote about how individual stories of the region can often be subversive because they complicate the larger story that people are wanting to tell. And so I love that you actually did that in your book is tell all these really individual subversive stories. Yeah, it's, um, it's, so it's really interesting. I think, you know, when I said that I was talking about how people do prison abolition activism in Appalachia and how they really take this tradition of storytelling in Appalachia and use it in sort of modern activism, the idea of letting people who are incarcerated tell their stories and sort of making a community of storytellers that also includes people who are in our region, not by choice. So that's a really beautiful thing to me. And you're absolutely right. One of the things that's so frustrating about the way that people talk about Appalachia is there is this one singular narrative, but we are a region of uh, storytellers and people who speak truth to power and who perform their identities and reperform their identities and make their connections with one another um, through the stories that we tell. Yeah, even um, I'm learning to play the banjo, but old folk music I've, I've always loved because so much of it is <laughs> many of them sad, but <laughs> yeah, very beautiful stories I'm told and, and with really I know eerie and wonderful instruments. I know it's one of my favorite parts about growing up there, and I, I miss it when I leave. Is there's not a lot of like front porch storytelling in in Austin at the moment, mostly because there's not a lot of front porches, but <laughs> <laughs> not happening. So I, on a basic level, I'm realizing that there's probably not a lot of folks who know what Appalachia is. Like in general, I mean, I know it's come up a lot in the news, but I don't think many, many pundits are are going out of their way to describe what exactly they are talking about. You are correct. (laughs) Appalachia is a place. So I always introduce it as a place that is a real place, but it's also an imaginary place, which um, is a good way to set the tone for a broadcast about gaming. But as a real place, it is a region that's 13 states. Um, West Virginia is the only state that's entirely within Appalachia. So we have parts of 13 states. Um, It's about 700,000 square miles. Um, It extends from Alabama up to New England, generally, as the name suggests, following the arc of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, There are 25 million people, give or take, in Appalachia at the moment. Um, Our biggest export, uh, contrary to popular belief, isn't actually coal, but it's young people. So it's hard to get good measurements of demographics in the region because there's so many out-migration. Appalachia is defined at the moment, um, in most definitions, by an organization called the Appalachian Regional Commission, which came up with this legal and policy-driven definition of Appalachia in the 1960s during the war on poverty. So it's good that we have this uh, formal scope of the region, but we also have to be a little bit flexible in our definitions of Appalachia. For example, I live in Augusta County, Virginia, which is um, was part of historic Appalachia. So it was part of the region that people talked about as Appalachia before the war on poverty. 
But when it came time to make, like, put it down on paper what Appalachia is, the, the civic leaders of Augusta County said, "No, we don't want to be. We don't want to be part of Appalachia. <laughs> All of y'all are poor. Um, we don't do coal mine. Yeah, we don't do coal mining here. So we're going to be part of the Shenandoah. You know, we want our identity to be the Shenandoah Valley, not Appalachia. So you have to be a little bit flexible about what Appalachia is." or isn't, an Appalachian identity is even more complex than that. It's, you know, a regional identity that has many intersections. You can be Southern and Appalachian. You can, you know, be many things and Appalachian. Um, it's definitely usually not the one thing that people identify their place in the world as. So it's complicated. But what I do in my book is talk about people who identify themselves as Appalachians. And I think that's the easiest thing to, you know, to let be your guide. Yeah, it was funny when my cousin, she moved up to to Ohio, which there there is parts of Ohio that are considered um, Appalachian. And it was really funny because when she said that, because I grew up kind of in Western North Carolina, which is pretty solidly uh, Appalachian due to its relationship to the Blue Ridge Mountains. I had to catch myself because I was like, oh, you're not really <laughs> but, like this weird, like infighting about what is and is not part of this word uh, that I've I've claimed. So it wound up being a really funny conversation about the fact that people don't think of people being Appalachian in the north. Yeah, which you definitely can be. Yeah, it's um, I mean, there's urban Appalachian, there's rural Appalachian, there's valley Appalachian, there's mountain Appalachian. There's lots of different Appalachias. Like, I think of Appalachia as a plural thing. Appalachias, Appalachians, um, to encompass a wide variety of how people experience the region and the world around them. The, one of the funniest things, though, that takes place is these um, arguments that we have in the region about how to pronounce Appalachia. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's Appalachia or Appalachia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you see people with, like, t-shirts that say Appalachia and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of, like... We work out our regional identities in some way, shape, or form through through like the very pronunciation of the region. Oh, that's so funny. So you talked before at the very beginning about some of the myths that surround the region. And I kind of want to delve more into that. I hate like perpetuating bad mm -hmm. assumptions about Appalachia, but I guess before we can get into what are some better ones, we should talk about what people are, are getting wrong. Yeah. So I think the first thing that we should do before talking about sort of um, stereotypes or preconceived notions about Appalachia is just like acknowledge that the impulse to create them is super old. Like it goes back even before the civil war. So when people hear these things, um, it, it doesn't sound unnatural for them to talk about Appalachia in this, in these ways, because um, I mean, this is the way that people have always talked about Appalachia. So big myths in Appalachia are that People are, you know, perpetually dependent on government assistance. Appalachia is frequently cast as like a taker region, a region that takes um, resources away from people with better lifestyles, better standards of behavior. Folded into that is often this myth that in order to be successful, you have to leave Appalachia, that the end game for every young person with ambition in Appalachia is to get out of the region as fast as possible. Another big myth is that Appalachia is sort of <laughs> like a white ethno state, I guess is sort of a concise way to put it, that people of color don't exist in Appalachia or that they exist in such um, small pockets of population that their existences and their lives don't matter. Um, and it's actually true that uh, our region, the sort of Latino and African-American populations in Appalachia are the fastest growing populations in terms of demographics. 
you had a quote, I could be wrong, but that there are actually more people of color in the region than coal miners. So when we talk about the region being defined by coal, it's not... It might as well be defined by people of color if we're going to go by that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, yeah, obviously more people of color than coal miners. There's about 36,000 um, coal miners in Appalachia, according to Department of Energy statistics, which fluctuates. But so that's definitely true. Um, there's more people in Appalachia that identify as African-American than Scotch-Irish, which is sort of like the big dominant um, heritage that... Uh, is imposed on the region. So yeah, so those are some myths that work together to kind of build this uh, very flawed portrait about who and what Appalachia is. Yeah, I mean, I could keep going. A lot of stereotypes, and you probably experienced this in Texas, that are about Southern individuals um, in terms of you know poorly educated, uh, self-sabotaging, things like that. These are all folded into the way that people talk about Appalachia as well. I guess for me, one of the biggest things I've, I've been learning and trying to learn more about is what is the purpose of making this mythical, this mythical region? Because it, it does kind of run contrary to a lot of the facts. But if people are mm-hmm. continually making this myth, there must be some benefit to them to have this myth exist. Yeah, that's a like an awesome question. That's, you know, takes up a lot of space in my book, because I think a lot of people who write about Appalachia, who are Appalachian, um, they proceed along the lines of debunking stereotypes and that is like super worthy and we need to do that. But what I wanted to do is less about um, debunking stereotypes than calling out power and why these narratives are so popular. The basic way to look at them is that they're popular because they make somebody money. These narratives are sort of entrenched into a lot of our capitalist systems in Appalachia. Let me give you an example The idea that Appalachians are sort of helpless people who are innately backwards, that don't know any better, that need sort of um, help existing and surviving really benefited coal barons, okay, because people who wanted to come in and exploit the region and use it as a resource colony. And the idea that these people who are living in Appalachia should be developed and put to purpose really allowed them to do some really uh, heinous labor practices in the region and suppress a lot of, you know, for example, union agitation. Um, In our modern times, they exist because they sell products, they sell books, they sell photographic collections, they get clicks. You know, Appalachians are probably the beneficiaries of, you know, the original hot takes, uh, (laughs) (laughs) if you will. So there's, there's, um, Ronald Eller, who's a really prolific Appalachian historian, whose work I love, said something along the lines of, like, we need Appalachia to exist to confirm the righteousness of our own lives. So there's the idea that Appalachia is a place that makes people, particularly white middle class people, feel good about themselves because they aren't Appalachian. Yes, they're not the the bad white people, so to yes. speak. <laughs> Yeah, Appalachia helps us form our ideas about who is a good white person and who is a defective or bad white person. Yeah, which is always comical because the people who live in Appalachia are not usually the ones making policies that affect structural (laughs) inequalities in our country at the moment anyway. Yeah, yeah. This idea that, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. The election narratives, um, one of the things that's often left out for them is like, I I don't like, you know, a lot of the things that people in Appalachia do or the policies that they enact. But I would love to live in a world where poor people had the kind of uh, political power that people assume that we do have. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a, a myth I could would gladly see coming. Yeah, I think we could work with that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so 
there's also the counterpoint, which I, I find equally interesting and dangerous and happens when people are feeling nostalgic for some weird uh, time that never existed, but also like the holy version of Appalachia where yeah. people who live there are like pure Americans. They're like the original, like what it means to be self-reliant, Thoreau, all that stuff, like not not involved in like the big the big business, the big politics, the like small person, small farm, all that stuff. Yeah, Appalachia is sort of a proving ground on which people can test out their theories about, uh, for example, race and culture. So we get a lot of um, negative stereotypes, but we also get some good ones as well. And these good ones take off, or quote-unquote good ones, you know what I mean? Um, They take off because people in Appalachia like to believe them too, because (laughs) when your culture is like talked about um, as such a defective culture that when people see good things about it, it's, you know, it's hard to kind of take a beat and sort of think about what um, is actually being said. And so one of these myths is um, what some anthropologists call the myth of holy Appalachia. So this idea that after the Civil War, white people in the country were very um, concerned about how to move forward from widespread systems of enslavement. And they really latched on to the idea that there could be uh, white people that weren't hadn't been contaminated by the evils of slavery, <laughs> that they weren't like, mm, yes. you know, inherently racist, um, that they were, I call them in my book, um, like the not all white people kind of hashtag, but set back in time 150 years. So people um, really wanted to believe that there could just be um, these innocent people, you know, up in the mountains who were very isolated from a lot of the social problems associated with systems of slavery. And that we're just kind of like going on with their lives in kind of blissful ignorance about what was happening on um, in the wider South. And of course, that's not true. Um, There's lots of historians that have debunked, you know, how racist Appalachians might or might not have been, how they fit into the wider system of slavery, how they benefited from slavery, even if they weren't um, slave owners themselves. But we get this impulse to say, like, these are the frontiers people. Um, The way that we talk about Appalachians when we want to talk, say good things about them are really sort of plugged into the way that some people romanticize, for example, Native American people as protectors of the land, as stewards of the land, um, people who have a simple way of life, an honest way of life, an innocent way of life. If you're a person on the ground and you're hearing these things, of course, it sounds better than hearing that you're like an inbred, uh, defective person, but they're equally problematic as well. I'm imagining it's like it it rang to me of sometimes the narrative of the happy poor person. Yeah. So the case of when we say like, oh, they're poor and don't have a lot of things, but they're happier that way. And it kind of lends to kind of a a turning a blind eye to some of the like the poverty that is really quite crippling to many people (laughs) in the area. Yeah, in Appalachia. Yeah, it's kind of like looped into this other idea that sometimes is um, pronounced in the region that if people would just leave us alone, (laughs) <laughs> that we that we would be better off. So this idea that yeah, just let us go, you know, have our live our way of life, and all the things that have happened um, that are negative in Appalachia have been because people outside the region have come to meddle with us, um, and that kind of ignores the the way that like local politicians and business elite have you know created sort of corruption and networks outside the region to you know exploit it. But it's you know it's all wrapped up into the same sort of idea that just you know, let us be, let us have this life, you know, lifestyle and and we'll be fine. (laughs) 
So in terms of media and kind of upholding this myth, how does how does the media play into kind of perpetuating and maintaining this rediscovery of Appalachia? So I think, um, you know, we'll talk about some good media, too, I'm sure. But the, the idea is that uh, Appalachia can be explained very simply um, with one single narrative. And that's something I think, especially today, is really popular among readers, especially readers who are looking for like one and done articles and books about a topic. And so the idea that Appalachia can be explained concisely or pithily or in a way that that makes everything going on in the country make sense, like it's a light switch, um, is not like that's the danger sign when you read something about Appalachia that makes you like sit back and go like, oh, gosh, everything makes sense now. Um, if anything, <laughs> like reading about Appalachia should leave you with many more questions than answers. But where we are in terms of the way we talk about politics, the way we talk about culture, the narratives of Appalachia's monolithic singular narrative really fit the way that people like to write about those topics. And on some, on some level, I can... I can relate to that because you just want to know, like, what was what happened? Why did this happen? Kind of thing. Um, And the desire for it to be a simple answer versus something that we are all, you know, complicit and dangerously affected by. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of media getting it right, what are some things that you've seen that you wish you could see more of? Yeah, this is a point where we could like shout out some good um, Appalachian um, media collaboratives and stuff like that. So. Contrary to what you might see in the press, um, Appalachia does have its own media. Um, <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. It's bananas. And so there's lots of people uh, in the region who are media or media adjacent that are doing really good work. Um, there's the Ohio Valley Resource, like journalism collaborative. Whitesburg, Kentucky has a huge media hub and it's home to a documentary studio like Apple Shop, but also radio station WMMT. Uh, po- the, the podcast of Trillbillies is based out of Whitesburg, too. We have lots of public radio traditions and public media traditions in Appalachia from West Virginia Public Radio that does a pretty popular show called Inside Appalachia. And in Knoxville, we've got WUOT that does like a dialogue program. There's Daily Yonder that focuses on rural issues, but there's a strong Appalachian component uh, to that side as well. And then you have um, some cool national outlets like New Inquiry and New Republic, who have Appalachian writers on staff. So people like Aaron Beatty or John Thomason or Sarah Jones are writing really good articles that are about Appalachia and Appalachia-adjacent issues. We have all of our kind of Southern media as well that um, occasionally publishes really good stuff about Appalachia from where we intersect. So Bitter South, Scalawag, Southerly, these are some of the media outlets that do good Appalachian coverage. Belt Magazine, which I sometimes write for, again, at the points where there's intersections between our geography, you see really strong work. Um, You have authors like Sarah Smarsh, who is uh, one of our sisters from the Plains, but she uh, writes about working class issues and poverty in a way that's really applicable to Appalachia experience. And I'm really excited that there's a new collective, Queer Appalachia, that is about to have its first uh, publication released. So it's, you know, photographs, poetry, creative writing, things like that. So Electric Dirt uh, will soon be out and available. And then we have just like this amazing tradition of photographers in Appalachia, people like Roger May, Raymond Thompson, Megan King, who are really challenging what it means to look at Appalachia too. So these are people that get it right, that know the region, that are talking about Appalachian issues, but also in a broader context about, you know, 
where are intersections to social issues such as mass incarceration or um, environmental concerns that are not just specific to Appalachia, but broader as well. Yeah. Where does, um, I, f- I follow them on the Twitter, but a hundred days of Appalachia. Yeah. So they started obviously as the name suggests, <laughs> <laughs> you know, on uh, inauguration day, the original project was I think to go for like the first hundred days in office um, to talk about the region responding to um, what would unfold during the first 100 days of the Trump administration. And then they um, managed to renew that. So it's still 100 days as a brand, but they're doing um, much more commissioned reporting about broader issues as well now. Yeah, and they um, they have sometimes these really beautiful photographs, which I think much like your book, I always have a contested and complicated relationship with photography as or any yeah. sort of visual medium as a way of representing a place. And so I was really excited to hear you mention some photographers that you liked. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what makes their photographs, their visual representations seem more sincere and nuanced? Yeah, it's um, I mean, I, I don't want to give a really simple answer, but I think it is just as simple as seeing um, Appalachians as human beings rather than representations of archetypes or stereotypes. These are people who are going out. Raymond Thompson, in, in particular, I love his photography. Um, I saw some of his work through the Marshall Project. But he, for a, for a time, for a project, um, I think it was called Justice Undone or something similar to that. But he documented WMMT, the radio station in Whitesburg, has a uh, radio program called Calls from Home where they try to put callers in touch with relatives and friends that are incarcerated in some of the large prisons um, across the the state line in West Virginia and probably now in Kentucky as well. And they really love this work so much that they started organizing transportation for family members to these prisons. And Raymond Thompson, he documented uh, the journeys of these family members to take um, because many of the, the, they're, they're, uh, I think they're all men's prisons, but um, the people who are incarcerated there have family in the Northeast or the Deep South or predominantly African-American. So they're making incredibly long journeys just to come and see their their family members or their friends for a few short hours. And so there's some great documentary projects along those lines. Roger May does uh, a project called Looking in Appalachia, which um, is really forceful with challenging the way that people um, tend to see Appalachia as a place full of, I guess, snake handlers. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, people with shirts. I've a snake in my life, I will say that. <laughs> you know, like, um, even today, it's, it's like, common to see a project uh, about Appalachia and see things like, you know, people photographing drug abuse, people photographing snake handling, burning crosses, um, that sort of thing. They really tie into these things of extremism or religious fundamentalism. And so I love photographers that really just capture mundane, ordinary, but real and authentic and human moments um, from Appalachia. Yeah, you had that, not to spoil your book for everyone, but you had that beautiful vignette at the end of your book where you talked about a photograph that you liked being a photo of people hanging out near a photo booth, which had like the double meaning of people able to like represent and photograph themselves while also just hanging out. <laughs> like yeah, in a cafe. I mean, it was like a really beautiful vision in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I think I ended that because I think I was like well into my twenties before I saw a picture of Appalachia that didn't like make me feel ashamed or gross or make me feel sorry for the people um, that were in it that weren't, you know, family snapshots or that sort of thing. So it was such a profound experience to be able to um, see this photograph where people were, you know, they were wearing clean clothes. Um, <laughs> they were hanging out like they were being very ordinary. And I was looking at this like, huh, 
you know, maybe like, I don't know, maybe we're not who the people that we think, you know, we are. Um, and some of the other images that I like that have been really important to me is um, I have a friend named John Mason, who's a professor at UVA and he's a great photographer. And we exchange uh, images sometimes of um, like mobile libraries, uh, bookmobiles and, and stuff like that. And there's some incredible like historic photos of children you know, choosing books at bookmobiles in Appalachia that really counter a lot of stereotypes too, because obviously the kids can read. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. And they're excited about it. That's crazy. And they're excited to read and they're not like faces aren't covered with dirt and they're not malnourished. <laughs> they're just like excited to read books. And so these are like uh, images that are really, really precious to me. Yeah. It's one of those, the sad things about media is I feel like they often, they do trade on that the kind of shock value of photos and watching people do nothing in a cafe or nothing in particular is not nearly as emotionally exciting on first glance as yeah. you know the tear jerking baby with the with the dirt and the bare feet so i think there's like two categories of things um, the games that work, there are games that are like by Appalachians or explicitly about Appalachia. And then there's games that um, have something to say or help us think about Appalachia uh, in new ways. And so I love, you know, I have great examples from both categories that I love tremendously. Um, my favorite game at the moment is Night in the Woods, which came out last year. And it is, I think to me as an Appalachian, like such a fantastic Appalachian game while not being explicitly about Appalachia, but it touches on lots of themes that um, I think about a lot. Things like homesickness and nostalgia and coming home and leaving home and um, what it's like to be deprived of access to things like healthcare, um, you know, job prospects, um, how you have to make your own communities sometimes how you have to get support from the people around you, how you sometimes can't rely on the um, infrastructure that should be in place to help you out. These are issues that are profoundly Appalachian. And um, it was such a like uncanny experience to be able to play characters um, that were going through the same things that I've been through in, in the past and in the present too. There's a really beautiful moment I, I i've been playing it recently it was with mm -hmm. may um for spoiler alert for those who haven't played it but for may and i think um b or bay depending mm -hmm. on how you pronounce it where they're they just got back from a party out in the woods and you realize that there's tension between them because b was not able to leave um she was not able to go to college and there's like this strange tension with may who was able to go, but then like kind of squandered mm -hmm. <laughs> that opportunity in some way. And for me, that resonated so much just because in recent conversations with people back home, there's that navigation of tension about leaving and staying and shame or guilt on either side of that, mm -hmm. of that divide, I guess. I don't know if you also had that since you did leave. Yeah. I, I mean, it's such an important tension to talk about. And like when we started like the conversation that we're having today, this was one of the sort of flawed narratives that I really, um, always think about in terms of narratives that have like real consequences for Appalachia and for people who live in Appalachia and this narrative that in order to be successful, you must leave. Um, and that if you stay, you're sort of complacent 
is really, really dangerous. Um, and so I had lots of opportunities to think on that and reflect on that while playing the game um, because, you know, May leaves, but she's not successful because, you know, she can't get access to some of the things she needs, even in this self-fulfilled idea of going to college um, and has to come back. And then she has to sort of grapple with the way that this migration, the leaving and going, um, is affecting her friendships, not only with like her friends, but also her parents. She says some really unkind things um, towards the game opening about, you know, my parents didn't have any ambitions, blah, 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 things like that. And so, yeah, it was a really um, sort of profound thing to think about. Um, these, I mean, these exist in our lives all the time. These, these tensions between are you successful, are you not successful, have you stayed, have you go. Um, Inside Appalachia has been doing a, uh, a multi-part series called The Struggle to Stay, which is about following sort of the same people as they um, make their way in Appalachia, trying to decide whether or not it's best for them to leave the region or whether or not there's potential for them to stay and be close to their family. So <laughs> this is, um, these are kind of thoughts that take up an enormous amount of space in our everyday lives. Yeah. I mean, as someone who, who also left and has started doing also that mid twenties kind of reassessment mm -hmm. of why I left and what yeah. am I doing out outside of where I grew up and really reassessing my judgments and own stereotypes about people who did stay. Cause I think that's the thing that is for me, the most angering about a lot of these myths is how much people who live there have internalized them mm -hmm. as fact, even though they're not like it, it yeah. took a lot of time to to rearrange my mind and like who was defining success and why was I defining mm -hmm. success in that same way? Why did I need to have a place that I was from be worse than where I was? Even though yeah. it's not really, I don't know if I'm any <laughs> any happier or better off than I was when I was growing up. Similarly, I had a very kind of jarring emotional moment playing playing Night in the Woods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like one of the questions that we can sort of like think about with games like Night in the Woods and a question and sort of a emotional process that games have a lot of potential to help us uh, work through is this idea like, how is it possible for you to be homesick for a place that everybody hates? Um, you know, um, like how do you how do you love a place that people tell you is toxic, um, is full of hate, um, is expendable? How do you nurture that love? How do you have a relationship to uh, a place where your personal history is obviously located that everyone is telling you should be like written off, um, you know, partition thrown into the ocean, things like that. Yeah, it's fantastic that games are kind of giving us a way to think about our attachment to place. Yeah, and even just the representation of visual space. A lot of the the visuals in Night in the Woods were very, I don't know, I, even though I hate it because it's, it's kind of a, a stereotype, but there's the store in it that says like the heart of possum springs and it's like closed or something yeah. um which is how i felt growing up with a lot of businesses that had closed down 
There's, I was just going to say, there's an author called, I think it's Jesse Donaldson, who just wrote a book um, for WVU Press called On Homesickness. And I haven't read it yet, but um, he's doing this amazing speaking tour where he's going to, I think, every county in Kentucky and giving a short reading of um, his book. And he's not going to, I mean, sometimes he is, but, you know, not places like the local library. He's going to, like, cigarettes for less, like the former <laughs> site. You yes. know, he's like, yeah. So it's really, like, I really have um, enjoyed following this journey of like Appalachians talking about homesickness and thinking about homesickness in these places that are really profoundly ordinary or even, you know, not exciting at all, like old uh, drugstores and old corner stores and things like that. Kentucky Road Zero is also a pretty surreal Appalachia-based video game. Have you had any experience with that one? Yeah, um, that's a favorite game as well. It's much more like mysterious and ambiguous and much more explicitly um, Appalachian than Night in the Woods. But again, I think it lets us think about this process about the thoughts and dreams that we had for our future, what our present is, how do we become attached to these places that things are not functioning correctly, things are missing. And so it was, yeah, those are those are my top two, like, if you want to understand, like, if you want to experience Appalachia, I should say, not understand it, but if you want to experience a small part of Appalachia. These are fantastic games to kind of get stuck into. Do you think there's something unique about experiencing the region through a video game versus through photographs or uh, movies or I guess even the written the written word? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I think that's a, a big part of um, what games bring to the table that sometimes other mediums don't. But this idea, you know, that we can not only create a world, but also live in a world that's immersive and, diff- you know, for some of us different. I could, you know, give you my book to read and you could get some idea about where I'm coming from. But another thing you can do is play, you know, Kentucky Route Zero or Night in the Woods. um, And you can have some of the same emotional experiences that I have as somebody who goes through my daily life in Appalachia. In terms of video games trying to represent it, things, but I don't know if they're trying to represent. I think the game makers just wanted to tell a story. (laughs) But Mm -hmm, it wound up being a happy accident as far as I'm concerned. But what's, what's at stake here? Why... Why does changing the way we think about Appalachia through any form of media, but um, also in our own minds, Mm -hmm. what's at stake for changing that? So Appalachia is um, at a moment of transition. Um, There's a lingo that's sometimes popular in the region called just transition. Um, This idea that in our lifetimes or within the next 50 years, we might see the functional end of coal, the coal industry. And so we're sitting at this intersection between the past and the present, there are some people who want to see Appalachia continue to serve as sort of an energy resource colony um, to bring in pipelines and fracked gas and all that kind of other infrastructure. And then there's people like me who want to see Appalachia embrace a different future. And so games have the potential, I think, to let us work through that what that future might be before its time has come. So that when we have the power, we have the capital, or we have the numbers, or we have the voices, to come together to try to make this change that we know have worked through these issues about what is important to us, our identity, who we are, who we want to be. Um, and so existing in fictional or created or, you know, even surreal worlds that let us think about and touch and feel um, a different Appalachia, a different future are going to be incredibly important. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love the idea of, um, I've, I've always been a super big sucker for speculative fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Uh, for just that reason, the idea that destroying what is currently there is 
especially mm-hmm. if it's toxic, is super great. But part of that is also kind of imagining something else to build towards. And it might be something like totally seemingly impossible, but Appalachia has done impossible things before. So, <laughs> well, one thing I think Appalachia people in Appalachia need to do is we, I think of us as sort of a, like a region or a people that are in like this, this perpetual period of mourning. Um, we're a region that mourns heavy. Um, we've lost a lot of things. Um, and so imagining these speculative futures or even like recasting the past where we have agency, you know, this is kind of like a game that, you know, I want to see where you're in the past, but you can change things. These are things that help us, you know, get through these stages of grief that we sometimes have um, in Appalachia, you know, we can skip ahead or we can, um, you know, dwell on something longer than our real lives might afford us the opportunity to, to work through our emotions um, about, you know, not only, what might be, but what can never be because of the way that people have exploited the region. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's surprising to me that people actually listen to me. <laughs> like, everything in my um, experience has told me that if a woman goes out to speak about, you know, a region that's um, sort of on the periphery of our consciousness that um, I'll just be written off. So it's been really surprising um, that the work has taken off in some respects, because also within the region, there's a tradition that most of our um, popular authors um, have been men. Not to say that there's not a tradition of women writers um, as well. They're fantastic. They just haven't achieved, um, in some respects, the recognition that male writers have achieved. So that has been surprising. Um, I've like experienced so much um, solidarity with people in Appalachia because of my writing. Um, I get an enormous amount of email from people who are just like at the end of their rope. It feels like um, not just the way that, you know, the the experiences that they're having, but the way that the regions is talked about. Um, I get emails from people who, for example, work in nonprofits who are like tired of picking up the phone and there's a reporter on the other end um, saying like, can you tell us where your unemployed coal miners live? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Um, there, yeah, there's people who are, you know, trying to make lesson plans for elementary school and like people are shoving copies of Hillbilly LG in their face and saying like, this is all you need. So there's been a lot of good connections that I've made because of this work. Um, I feel like, you know, all those, um, media organizations and writers and creatives that I name checked. Um, my work is like just a small part of this mosaic of people who have put um, their entire being into um, doing good work about the region for the good of the people. So I'm so happy to be a part of that and feeling that I am part of that has been the greatest uh, reward for me. Was there a watershed or a tipping point where you realized that because as someone who also exists on the internet, you kind of scream yeah. into the void a lot. So yeah. <laughs> as, was, what was the point at which you realized that the void was paying attention and was, was feeling something? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, so it's probably when I started talking to, to Anne and working on this book with Anne. And, um, and every step of the way, I, I ha- have to say that there have been like really amazing women like pulling me up. And that's a story that, like, I am as much of a part of, um, too. Um, the idea that there are not just in Appalachia, but throughout um, the media that are trying to make other women successful 
um, is really important to me. And I suppose like the moment where I thought, oh, gosh, I do have something important to say was um, women like Anne Trubeck or Martha Bain or the people in the Belt family writing to me and saying that, like, yeah, these stories are important and you have a good voice to tell them and we're glad that you're doing this work. Um, that was like huge to me. Oh, yeah. I will say you are superbly funny in the book which I don't like it's like my style of humor there was a wonderful moment where you were um talking about you're also very poetic which I I also love but there was a moment where you're talking about your history as a, a translator for Greek yeah. poems and your professors were like be wary of elegies they're often political and then immediately go into hillbilly elegy by yeah <laughs> by JD Pants. I was like so yeah. sly so funny <laughs> I try to be fun. I try to be funny. Like, like humor is dark humor is um, a lot of what we used to, to stay sane in Appalachia. <laughs> super. Well, you did, you did a wonderful job. Thank you. Um, I can say, and I'm going to end on a, a super fan girly note, which I've been trying to resist, but your work has often either made me cry or like on the brink of crying oh. <laughs> and like a really, not like crying of anger, but in just in giving voice to a lot of things that I did not, have words for previously yeah and as someone who grew up in the region and left and had a very like was part of the brain drain in terms of their export and wrestling with all of my complicated feelings about where i grew up and finding someone else who's also choosing to exist in kind of in that gray area of loving a place Mm -hmm. and also being super frustrated with it and being (laughs) irritated and feeling hopeless at times and just loving it Anyway, even with all of its its scars, both physical mm-hmm. and geographical and metaphorical, I don't know. It's just it's impacted me in ways that I don't know if I could articulate, and it's definitely oh, set nice. me on a path of wanting to understand more about what has happened and how I got to where I am and why I'm not where I grew up and what that means. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. It's a trip for sure, um, but I think we'll I think we'll win. So. <laughs> I think so. Also, there's a lot of very um, smart people out there. I mean, that's the other thing is like I grew up with um, I mean, I'm Jewish and my mom is gay and I grew up Mm -hmm. (laughs) in Western North Carolina. And so that story was never reflected back to me and still isn't to some extent. Um, Mm -hmm. And usually when I tell people about my family, they're always like, oh, my God, that must be so hard. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, That must have been the worst. I'm like, it was actually pretty pretty chill like I don't know like um we were kind of we were pretty broke but it wasn't a thing that I remember as being a thing I was ashamed of until I I started going much further away and realizing just how dilapidated some of the houses were in the region and Mm -hmm. I'm still not ashamed I'm choosing not to be ashamed because I loved my house I have a lot of fond memories of where we grew up yeah so what's what's next for you in terms of because you finished the book yeah, I have finished the book. So I've actually been finished with the book for a little while. Um, but these things just take time to like print and to promote. So I'm doing, you know, some writing for some different kinds of outlets, um, freelancing. I do a tiny bit of consulting with my consulting firm. We do like uh, a historic preservation kind of plans for people. Um, we do a lot of pro bono work um, for sort of um, African-American groups, union organizers, things like that in Appalachia. That's our niche. Um, but I really want to write something next about this topic, a little, a little bit about this topic that we're talking about today. Um, this idea of technology and nostalgia in Appalachia, because um, I think it's really profound. We can look at topics like, you know, this neoliberal impulse to say that technology and 
uh, is going to save Appalachia. So this whole uh, silicon hauler type idea that um, we see bandied around a lot in the region, but also these ideas that, you know, when we think about Appalachia, we don't think about technology. It's sort of antithetical to our way, but even, you know, um, but we've got things like rocket buoys and hidden figures. And my part of the world was where they made the atomic bomb. Um, (laughs) So small, pretty large claim to fame, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I want to kind of recuperate the story of technological advancement in Appalachia. And really, this is like an idea that I keep having because I was really a big fan of Halt and Catch Fire. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to go and find like the Appalachian Cameron Howe, who's the female protagonist. Um, So I want to find stories about people who were um, trying to change lives through technology in Appalachia and what they have to say about, um, again, these narratives that I often work against or within about what people think about the region. Oh, I love that. I mean, I am a fond of, I am a fond, that's not even a word, but I am quite fond of technology. Growing up, I was a huge tech kid in terms of mm-hmm. like, I wanted to, our internet was super slow, so I couldn't play games, but I could yeah. make websites. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing you could do if you don't have very good internet is write code apparently. But yeah, it's definitely when I tell people that I think they just think that we all farm, which many of us do, but yeah, you can farm and have... <laughs> A working computer. Um, Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's extra important to us, too, because sometimes we're geographically isolated from one another. So these connections that we can facilitate through technology remotely over long distance are really, really important. Yes, I'm excited. Actually, that's it's for different conversations for different days, which people can look forward to, and which I am talking to <laughs> yeah, people absolutely. who just played games growing up about, I mean, playing online. Uh, <laughs> like, I remember I had to play online with people because they lived, it was like a 30 minute drive to their house. Even yeah, we lived like in the same the same town and it wasn't 30 minutes like traffic like <laughs> yeah, 30 minutes, like 15 miles or something mm-hmm. like absurd. Um yeah. So and then I had a friend who who built computers growing up. And yeah, to me, like just as a, a hobby and a pastime. And that's like that's not a thing that you see on the news. Like young boy spends alone time playing with <laughs> I don't know, com- computer <laughs> bits. This is how badly I don't know about how to build mm. a computer. I should really learn. But yeah, awesome. So if people wanted to to keep up with you, what's the what's the best way to to stock <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Cat? I'm super easy to find. Uh, my Twitter handle is just uh, Elizabeth Cat, all one word. Um, and I have a website that is elizabethcat.com. Again, Elizabeth Cat is all one word. So come and find me and we'll talk. Awesome. Um, and then before we sign off, is there mm-hmm. is there any last parting words or hopes or feelings that you'd like to impart? Um. You know, my hope, I'm really excited to listen to um, the other interviews in this broadcast and see what people have to say about um, these issues of world making and creativity and gaming in Appalachia. But I really hope that someone um, can answer you the question about whether Resident Evil is or is not an Appalachian game. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, let me write that in all caps and I'm going to Is Resident Evil? It's so hard because I feel like so many dystopian futures are set in the region. I know. Like that's where... I mean, we could ask the larger question is like, are all dystopian futures Appalachian? Appalachian. <laughs> um, I'm so tremendously grateful for you coming online and for mm-hmm. sharing your work with other people. Um, I, I always say that 
even if you yourself are not Appalachian or have no intention on ever going there, learning about what's going on has impact not just for that region, but for the U.S. in general. Absolutely. Um, we're all connected. And I think the mm-hmm. issues that are facing Appalachia are not unique or special, even though they are um, region specific to some extent. But I couldn't agree more. Yay. And on that note, well, thank you so much for coming on. And I hope you have a wonderful a wonderful life. I mean, hopefully I'll talk to you before the end of that. <laughs> we'll but talk like, to you. I'll probably talk to you in a couple of days, but yeah. <laughs> Same to you. All right. And um, everyone who is listening, if you are interested, please hit me up and tell me kind of your experience with the region. And it can be as much as I've never heard of this place before in my life. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but I'd love to hear kind of where my listeners are coming from with their understandings and experience. And it's totally fine if it's not a positive feeling or thought. It's just pure curiosity on on what y'all know and what y'all have heard. Because um, I don't know where all of you are. <laughs> You could all be from Appalachia. Who knows? In that case, and everyone, I will see you next time for our next episode in the Appalachia and video game series. Bye. <laughs>